Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, today my guest is Marshall Roberts. And Marshall, I met you way back in 2005 in church. We were in the same congregation together. And I remember the times that we interacted. It was brief and very few. But I remember you didn't smile a lot. And when I did try to connect, there was a look in your eyes that was like, screw you, dude. Don't even freaking try. You ain't gonna make you ain't gonna make me smile. Don't even try to put your, you know, your preachy crap on me. <laughs> so you apparently were a sad little dude for whatever reason. So tell me about that. Well, it was, uh, well, first of all, I'm really glad to be on the show. Thank you, Brian, for inviting me to this. And um, you're welcome. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Sad little depressed kid is what I was. I thought, I thought I had the world all figured out. And there was a lot of times that I may have felt. And I may have felt that I was better than people I was walking around. And it was a really introverted, kind of in, poor way to look at the world. And I didn't really talk to, I didn't really talk to a lot of the new people in the ward. Did were you always kind of that way, or kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, angry, or, or was that something that was kind of new at that at that stage of your life? Well, I think, uh, I think growing up. You know, I had a I had a couple of really close friends, and I was well liked at school. But I was one of those slow to warm up to people kind of people, and I just saw new people in the ward or new people at school as possibly overly friendly, and and trying to talk to me was kind of offensive. Like, what are you, <laughs> screw you, dude! Don't even try it. <laughs> so offensive. What were, did you think their mo- their motives were were ill 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 I guess. To be honest, it was it was kind of a. I think I think that I've got superiority complexes back when I was younger. I felt like I was uh, I was very arrogant and I was very self centered. And whenever new people tried to communicate with me, I just I didn't want to hear it. I didn't like making new acquaintances. I wasn't a big fan. I, looking back, I guess that that's a good a good way to describe it because that's kind of how I felt. I'm like, oh, that's a little, little uh, you know, <laughs> cocky dude, you know, I'm just trying, you know, so piss off, bro. Mm-hmm. Kind of was the, but uh, I knew that I, I knew, I mean, I suspected there was obviously, I mean, people aren't just that way for no reason. Sure. Well, so. I think that I think that a lot of I think that a lot of the introversion came from the fact that I was I was suffering pretty heavily from depression as a teenager and the older I got the more intense the depressive episodes got and there was there was some trouble at home sometimes uh, difficult relationships with my mother and it just kind of got to the point that I started shutting people out deliberately like, I don't want to interface with you. You've got nothing that you're going to tell me that's going to fix this. And the fact that you care, it was. It was a little bit offensive to me. Like, like you don't know anything about me. You don't know what I'm going through. 
so how dare you ask kind of thing right yes okay so then as as the years progressed or the weeks progressed how how did you cope with that or or what was did that get better did that get worse well my mom started taking me around to uh therapists you know we had the uh hundred thousand therapists we went around to and trying different medications and trying different forms of therapy and to be honest with you i didn't i wasn't i wasn't taking any of it they'd they'd try to diagnose me and i'd shut them out or they'd try to get into difficult experiences in my past and i didn't want to reveal that to them because it was embarrassing and i never let them in and as a result of that their inability to understand what i was going through it just got all pawned off on okay well he's just got depression so they try this medication or they try that medication and it was it was a nightmare the medication side effects the the expectation that after I take this medication, I'm going to be fixed or I'm going to be healed. It started to weigh pretty heavily on me. And ultimately I ran away. You met me, you met me around 14, 15 years old. And 15 is when I ran away from home for the very first time for a serious amount of time. I just, how long did you, did you go? Well, I left the house one night. I just grabbed a few things of mine, jumped out the window, and I went over to my friend's house. And I stayed there for probably four months. And I had I had my parents, you know, they called the police. The police showed up a couple of times. I ran out the back door. Uh, I did end up getting home a couple of times during that period. But it was always for just a short amount of time. And then I would just ditch again because... Why am I going to put up with that when I can just go hang out at my friend's house and we can play play on the PlayStation? Nobody's going to tell us when it's time to go to bed. Uh, you know, there was there was no authority at the place that I was staying at, the new place. And so I just kept leaving. I kept running away from home. And it, and as a kid, as a kid, you're like Yahoo freedom. Nobody, you know, no no nagging parents on me. Right? Yes, that's exactly right. Well, I. I set up my independence as best I knew how I enrolled myself into high school again for the following year, uh, paid the fee, went to school, uh, got a job, you know, started trying to, to gain that independence so that I didn't need them anymore. I didn't need to talk to them at all. And I cut them out and it started to show I've always been a really good student and my grades started dropping off. I stopped caring about making it to class on time. Uh, I, I actually lost that first job of mine because one day I didn't feel like going to work. And I was like, well, they're probably not going to fire me. Then I didn't do that, go to work for three more days. And then, yeah, they did fire me. <laughs> right. So, you know, a show of independence turned into a show of inadequacy. And it was around that time that, I actually started using drugs for the very first time. And what was the, what was the, I'm just going to get the process, the thought process of what was going through your mind when you're thinking, Oh, I'm going to try X, Y, or Z drug hmm. for X, Y, or Z reason. Sure. What was that? What led you to that? Uh, it started out with the, 
the open act of rebellion, the open act of being away from my parents, that was invigorating. There was, there was something there, some sort of a, a feeling, an emotion that I was experiencing that said, yeah, I don't need them. And I was staying at my friend's house in his basement. And there was an additional friend that was there long enough that he might as well have been, been living there. He was there all the time. And he smoked cigarettes. And keep in mind, we're about 15, 16 years old around that time. And he smoked cigarettes and I did not want anything to do with them at first. But he never asked. He never tried to force me to smoke one. But one night I had an unusual dream where I, in the dream, experienced smoking a cigarette. And the very next morning I asked him if I could try one to see how authentic that dream experience was. So it was kind of a it was kind of an experiment, I guess you could say, a curiosity. And that's, that's my weakness is I'm so curious about the world. And so I smoked my first cigarette and it sucked. <laughs> it was, it was, it was harsh. It was, it was everything that I did not expect. And, uh, a couple of days later I tried again and it turned into a, it turned into a thing, it turned into a, a smoking habit. Well, the cigarettes, I don't want to call, I don't want to use the term gateway drug here. I'm really wary of that term because I think people use it for too many things. I mean, if you think about it, the internet is a gateway drug to pornography or Facebook addiction. You know, there's gateway drugs everywhere, but it was a start. Yeah, it was a start. And he apparently had been smoking marijuana as well. And I found that out. And decided that that was something I wanted to experience. So with those two back to back like that, it created this precedent for me that I wanted to experience these changes in my body. I wanted to experience, oh, this, this changes me physically. Like I actually feel physically different. And I like that. And I started smoking marijuana. The marijuana smoking is probably what did me in because it made me realize that there's a whole different world of mind-altering and physical body-altering substances out there that can change the way you see the world. And with marijuana, it's very psychedelic and it's very creative and, and just you're, you go into your mind with it and you just learn things about yourself or you think you do at least. <laughs> Um, and it got us on this kick of where we started researching different drugs. We hopped on our internet and we just went crazy. Now, this you and that same friend yeah. that you were living yes, with? the same okay. friend. And I kind of wanted, I, I was considering, you know, using a name for him. So we'll just go ahead and call him Jack out of respect for him. Yeah. So Jack and I are both incredibly intelligent and I don't say that in arrogance. It just shows in the things that we do and that we pursue. And we're both really good with pharmaceutical chemical compound names. So we started learning the names of all the different drugs and we started learning the chemical compounds and how they assemble, how they activate in your body. And it was fun. It was exciting. And, and it, felt, it felt very grown up to be doing the research. Like an academic experiment versus two punk kids getting into drugs. <laughs> I suppose you could say that, yes. 
So you were studying to be a college professor. Bingo. We were the geniuses. Yes. We were the next Einstein that smoked pot. Of course. So we get into this researching habit and we were smoking pot. And I will say it just like this. There were no transitional drugs. We stumbled across a, a dangerous chemical compound known as diacetylmorphine. Diacetylmorphine is essentially an opiate derivative that creates morphine, or that is morphine, but some clever genius over in Europe somewhere added two extra acetyl compounds onto it, which allowed it to convert over the blood-brain barrier without losing its morphine sulfate compound, which creates an incredibly powerful rush, an incredibly powerful euphoric experience. And the common name for this drug is heroin. Uh, magic. Magic. So yeah. he tells me to come over and look at his computer and he says, hey, I want you to look at this and tell me what you think. And I thought he was just talking about my opinion on, on the innovative ways that it was built, but he was serious about trying this drug. And I was like, bro, that is, that's the king of bad drugs. That is, that is the king of all bad, of all the horrible things in this world. And he said, I know, but you know, what if, what if we just made a pact with each other to where we just bought it, used it once so we could have the experience and then protected each other from using it ever again. And my, so you had a full on strategy. Yes, we had a strategy and it was as naive as it can get. <laughs> but, but you, but it made you, it, I'm guessing it, it made you feel like, Hey, this is safe. We're, we're, we're being wise about this. Yes. We're not just being careless teenagers. Yes, that is exactly what it felt that's, like. That's an amazing position to, to hold, for sure. Yes. Which gave you permission to continue down that road, probably. Well, it was definitely, uh, it definitely accelerated the rate at which I started experimenting. Okay. So he said, I'm, I'm like, all right, let's just pretend that I'm cool with this. And he said, oh, well, if we're going to do it, we have to inject it. And if we don't inject it, it's, we're not going to experience it as strongly as we should. So okay. Okay. I'm like, dude, are you serious? Now you're talking about intravenous injection of heroin. You're like going to the max here. And he says, right. But if we're just going to experience it the one time, we might as well experience <laughs> it at its most potential. And those were our famous last words. So the experiment has to be solid, right? So we got to do it according to the book. Yes. Yes. That's fascinating. You guys were too smart for your own good. Maybe. Maybe. That's a whole new perspective <laughs> well, on too smart for your own good. Yeah, exactly. Well, clever researchers we were. We went and found a forum online that taught, taught you literally step-by-step step how to purchase heroin in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> I mean, if that's God bless, God bless you. If internet. that's not pure evil, I don't know what it is. Uh, so we drove up there, and we purchased it, and we purchased the heroin, and we we got the we got the needles, and we drove. Well, let me let me. Exp this is just my curiosity. Explain how you did that. Like, what did that? What did that? Did it tell you to go to somebody's house? Uh, was it a sketchy little deal like you see in the movies? Was it in, was it in a church? Where was? It? I mean, how did that work? Well, it'll be brutally clear that 
it is insanely easy to access. We drove at this at this forum's advice to the homeless shelter in downtown Salt Lake. Is that the road That's home? That's the the old road home before they moved the, moved okay. the cleaned up the shelter. Okay. We drove there and we pulled up and it was the first person. He says, just trust me on this one on the forum. The guy's instructing you just trust me on this one. Pull up to anybody on the street, roll down your window and say, Hey, do you got Chiba? Do you got black? And those are street slang for heroin. Okay. Sure. Sure enough. We pull up, we see a dude walking by. He looks like he's been homeless for years. And we roll down the window and say, Hey, you got black. Yeah. How much you need? So we gave him the money. We asked him if he had any rigs or what the slang term for needles is. We asked him if he had any rigs and he had those. What, 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 uh, so what did you pay for that first dose? Well, each, each balloon of heroin costs $20 and a balloon, if you have no tolerance, will get you high anywhere between four and five times, depending on your tolerance. Okay. And so we each bought a balloon and we spent an extra uh, $3 for the needles. And it's interesting looking back on it. The guy actually looked at us and realized that he was selling heroin to a bunch of 16 year olds. And he said, are you guys going to be all right? And we tried, <laughs> we tried to play it off. Like we'd been do- doing this for years. Oh yeah, man. I hope this is pure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Acting like you know what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. Well, we got the heroin. Drove all the way back to Highland, and we made our way into the what is now called the Heritage Park. The Adventure Learning Park was the name back then. Mm-hmm. We broke off into the woods. There was nobody around, and he tells me he wants to use it first. And I said, "Okay, that's cool. You know, just we're just gonna put we're just gonna put it in the needle here, but only put only inject like a quarter of the needle. Only inject a quarter of it because you don't want to overdose on your first try." And that was the advice of the guy on the, on the website. Well, that's very good advice. Very kind of him to, to think so highly of. Safety first. Yes, that's right. So we get it prepared. Zach takes the syringe and he injects a quarter of it. And then he looks up at me and he gives me a wicked grin. And he proceeds to inject another quarter of it, making a total of half of the syringe. And... I remember he said some pretty, uh, it's a, it's a profane word that he said. I don't know if you're willing to accept that on your show or not, but yeah, yeah. go ahead. He said, Oh fuck. And his eyes rolled into the back of his head. It took, it took about 30 minutes to get him brought back around. And the entire time I was crying, he turned blue he stopped breathing and I, I went to the lake and I got water and I threw it on him and I, I slapped his face and I gave him CPR and I started yelling, help, help, somebody call an ambulance. And about 30 minutes into it, he finally coughs and breathes his first breath for forever. And I tell him, I say, bro, there's sirens coming. We got to get out of here. We've got illegal street drugs. We got to get out of here. And the first thing he says to me was, you're going to love it, dude. Wow. Yeah. Well, we ran out of there and the police did show up and, and nobody was there, of course. But 
we went back home and I went ahead and injected heroin for the first time. And it was probably the single most intense experience I will ever have. There's no comparison. Nothing comes close. And I remember thinking immediately after the experience, and that's anywhere between six and eight hours till it wears off mostly. I remember thinking, you know, there's so much hype about how horrible that drug is, but the experience was so profound for me. I don't see why that's such a bad thing. My young mind is trying to keep is trying to keep its sanity, I suppose, by providing clean justifications for the righteousness of what I did. Right. And it got it got bad. That it got really bad. So it was such a magical experience that you basically you had become you were addicted after the first one to some extent. Is that a fair a fair statement? That is a fair statement. It was, I mean, if anybody, if anybody listening's ever had a pain pill for they broke their arm or they went in and had surgery, you've tasted maybe, maybe a, a 5% of the, wow. The level of intensity and the level of the sense of well being is so overwhelming that you can't be in the wrong. There is nothing that you do that will be wrong. And that's what it, that's what it provides. It provides a sense of rightness to the person using it. Makes everything seem like a good idea. Oh, makes everything seem like a divinely inspired idea. Wow. That's, that's powerful. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've taken pain medications and I, and I didn't grow up in the, the church. So I spent some years drinking. That's the only comparison I have, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like it even compares. Well, the last thing I really want to share on the initial uses before we get into, uh, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about my past and then about my current present. Okay. Was the experience that really set the addiction in like a tattoo. It was very, very shortly after that first that first usage. And we, we used in the beginning, maybe casual is the best term, maybe on the weekends or maybe one one night on Wednesday, we didn't have anything going on. So we got some more and we'd use it on Wednesday, but it wasn't a daily thing. And that's usually how it starts for most people. They call them weekend warriors. So okay. They've always got a clever term for horrible things. Oh yes. Yeah. That's, that's how Satan works too, you know? <laughs> so did you go to the same, did you have like the same supplier or was that just random? I was a random dude. And we figured if we just go up and hit up random dudes, we'll get it. And sure enough, it didn't matter who we asked, we found. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. One, it's free. Two, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Three, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many others. Four, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And five, it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. It is so stinking easy. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. 
you will not be disappointed. And we're back. So you said you you were using to to mask the pain, just in just everything, depression, what you'd experience with your friend. It became daily. It became a pursuit. It became a part of my routine. It was go to work, endure work so that I could make the money to go to buy heroin and to buy enough heroin to last a week. And it started, it started consuming my life. And that was the point. That... Just, just go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, <clears throat> The segue here is I'm not entirely certain and I've tried this with my therapist to decide what it was that turned my point of view or that offered me a paradigm shift but I suspect it was this one event with the spider. I was laying on I was sleeping on a couch in my friend's basement for this entire experience. And it was cold down there, it was unfinished, it was it was wet and it wasn't the best place to to probably be living but it was a place to sleep. And I was sitting on the couch, laying on the couch, and I was kind of halfway between awake and asleep. And the biggest wolf spider I've ever seen in my life crawled across my face. Yeah. And I thought it was like a hair, like a hair was on my face, and then it got heavier. And I, I, I knew, I just knew that's a spider. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. Yeah. So I, I did the whole quick flick off the face and just, just stomped that spider into oblivion, just yelling, you broke the rules, you broke the rules. (laughs) and when I was done with that I looked around it was that moment I believe that I really did take a look at myself there was there was needles laying where I could see them I was getting starting to get sick going through withdrawals because I hadn't used in a few hours the basement's dirty I'm dirty I'm probably going to lose my job I'm run away from home my life is a wreck did your did your parents know you were involved this heavily? I don't think. Or were you? Did you did you cut them off? I don't think with communication. I'm not sure that they knew how heavily I was involved with the heroin at the time. I know that they knew I was using. The suspicion was probably that I was using a lot of hair or uh, marijuana. Excuse me. Right. I've never really checked with them on that, Brian. I'll be honest. So, I have this realization, and I just tell myself, you know what? It's time. It's time. I got to get myself together. I have to get my life together. And I joined the army. <laughs> so you, so you signed up, joined, and did you go? I mean, how 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 long after you signed up were you like heavily involved in it? Well, I signed up. I graduated boot camp. I graduated uh, AIT, and in, towards the end of that uh, AIT, I had been in eight months. And I really started to internalize the the death of my friend. It started to register to me in a way that I couldn't escape it. It was like everywhere I went, everything that I did, here he was, his face as an afterthought. Like, you're guilty. You know. Gosh, yeah, haunting you almost. And I I went to the army chaplain. I was depressed. I was starting to feel suicidal 
And I went to the army chaplain. And to be honest with you, the intention was talking to him. He's supposed to be like a spiritual and a psychological supporter. But in the army, there's no such thing as mental illness. They don't believe in it. <clears throat> right. They're very, Just suck yeah. it. Suck it up, bro. Suck it up. So I'm talking to this chaplain and I wanted some support. That's why I went in there. And the next thing I know, I'm being taken out to Lackland Air Force Base because the Air Force does believe in psychological problems. And I'm being admitted to an inpatient psych ward to be evaluated for suicidal ideations and possibly be treated. And then while I was there, they signed my discharge papers. So I was honorably discharged and I had done really well while I was in massive promotional points, junior leader of the cycle, bay leader of the cycle. I did well and I did not want to leave. And I had been sober the whole time that I was in. And now I'm getting rolled up. I'm getting kicked out. And that was tough. There was a part of me that wanted to go home really badly. You miss home. But there was a part of me that said, why is this happening to me? All I wanted was a little support. So I came home and uh, it was, it was, a di- it was a difficult experience for me because it felt like, it felt like a cold reception. At home? Yeah. Nobody was. And how, how old were you at that time? So I was 19 or no tail end, tail end of 18 years old. Excuse me. Okay. And I wasn't sure what everybody's feeling was as well as the level of education that they had on exactly why I got rolled out, but I didn't tell them anything either. I wasn't very forthcoming with the details. Um, It was embarrassing. It was, it was self-depreciating. I was self-depreciating. It really took a knock at my self-esteem and I wasn't proud at all. You know, I got through basic. Yeah, that was tough. I got through AIT. That was really tough. But that's it. There was no service. There was no in theater. There was no deployments. There was nothing. And I was getting rolled out. So I kept my mouth shut about it. And I came home. And nobody was overtly rude or, or, uh, you know, they, they welcomed me home. They gave me hugs. And they came to the airport and they picked me up. But I could feel it. I could feel that there was something there and I took it in my mind as, oh, they're judging me. They're looking down on me for failing. So kind of a hollow reception. Yes. Hollow reception. I like that. I got out and I didn't immediately go back to using drugs, but a very short time later and after a couple month trip down to Tucson to live down there with my half brother not going to get into that story. I started smoking marijuana again. And when I came back to Utah, I was living at home with my father and I kind of laid off the marijuana smoking when I got back to Highland, but alcohol started to become a factor in my life. And I was not yet old enough to purchase alcohol, but the people I was hanging out with, I got a hold of some old friends. They were using alcohol and they had friends and sisters and brothers that would buy it for them. And that was awesome. So I just kind of started playing video games and I started just hanging out with old friends that were really sloppy for me. And I just didn't do very well. And I'm living at home with my dad, who's now recently divorced. The house is empty. 
and I was doing nothing. There was. Are you the youngest child? No, that's my baby sister. Okay. I'm the second youngest. So my dad decides that I need to either get a job, go to school or move out. He gave it to me in just those terms. And I was like, okay, great. I've always kind of wanted to go to college. Why don't I go do that? So I didn't know anything about the college application process. I didn't know anything about accreditation, nothing about how to get a degree, nothing. And I went to pretty much the first place I thought of, which came off of a TV commercial. And that was Stevens Henniger College. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. That was an interesting experience. Well, the good news was they were willing to accept the GI Bill that I had received while I was in the military for that short time. And I was able to get out of college with very, very little student debt. So I went to school and I wanted to study medicine. Now, if you remember earlier in our conversation, medicine was kind of a bad thing for me and my friend Zach because we were so fascinated by pharmaceuticals and drugs. Well, I wanted the prestige. I wanted the paycheck. And I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. I figured that was going to be the coolest thing in the world. And I didn't really think about it much. I didn't think about why I wanted to do that. But I joined the army as a combat medic. And I figured the natural next step was to go to school to become a physician. So I started going to college. And I started drinking pretty heavily and I started making acquaintances at school that were older than me, but would buy me drinks. And I drank on the weekends and then I started drinking at night on on the weekdays. But the most fascinating thing about this whole period of my life is that at no point in time did I ever drop below a 4.0. So you were a, you were a functional mess. Yes. (laughs) A functional mess. I love it. Ah, functional mess. Well. Because, you know, it's funny. uh, You mentioned grades. We put so much stock in grades. And, oh, they're a good kid. They got good grades. But, you know, they were an a-hole, which they don't talk about. But they got good grades. Yeah. You know, so that's funny. You, you, as long as you get the 4.0, everyone thinks everything's fine. Bingo. Which is stupid. It doesn't, it doesn't tell. It tells a little bit of a story, but not the story, in my opinion. Sure. Well, I've always been a stage performer type, and having good grades might have been a part of that desire to look good, to look like I have my yeah, acts well, together. Yeah, because so much is measured by that, which is, again, stupid. <laughs> but, you know, I digress. Yes. Well... It was around that time that me, the friend that I was living with in Highland, the house that I was living with there. This is, is this the same friend you started with? No, this is the, this is the friend okay. whose, whose home I was living in. Okay. And another kid that we grew up with, we decided we were going to just go out for dinner, catch up. You know, we haven't seen each other for years. Marshall's been in the army. This other friend's, you know, he's been to, uh, he's been to college and he's studying computer sciences. So we decided to meet up and just touch base with each other and see how we were doing. Well, we go out to dinner, and lo and behold, my friend Zach is there. And that wouldn't be such a bad thing 
because I had been so long at that point without the heroin that it wasn't really a factor in my mind. It was like, oh, it's good to see him. I haven't seen him forever. Well, we stepped outside to smoke. I had continued the smoking habit. We stepped outside to smoke cigarettes and he was ready to go. Let's get high. It's been a long time. I miss it. What do you think? Let's revisit our old pharmaceutical friend. Yes. Okay. Well, a rational person who had never used it before would have been like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, are you serious? Well, you want to go back there. But there was... Was he with Was he with you when your other friend No, he didn't want to be a part of that. Uh, oh, that was just you two. So it wouldn't have been such an issue, I think, if it had been a process like, oh, well, we got to go buy it. Oh, we got to go get the, the needles, the rigs. But the fact of the matter was he had it on him. He had it ready to go. Wow. Like on tap. Yes. And because of the access, the ease of access... I said, yeah, you know what? It has been a long time. Let's get high. That was the start of this most serious part of my addiction. That was the start. That was the turning point that put me on this entire downward spiral that turned into me robbing banks and going to prison. Interesting just something so so benign you know in that setting that's 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 kind of a fascinating perspective well if you've been in the drug game for long enough you start to understand that it is not in your face hey you're gonna do some drugs right now there's no oh i'm gonna make the hard decision it's always casual it is always Mm -hmm. slight it is nothing Oh, just pass that over here. Oh, here's just a tiny piece. Or, you know, it's it's so casual and it's so slight that it doesn't trigger your alarms. It doesn't set off your system defense. Yeah. yeah. And that's dangerous. And that's that's how Satan works. Yes. Small flax and cords. He's like he's not he's not going to knock on your door and say, I'm here to destroy you because you shut the door in his face. But it's just a subtle little, oh, hey, you know, come on. Why not, man? It's old times, bro. Come on. It's always the flex and cord. Yeah. And those you trust around you as well. Yeah. Well, as you can probably guess, after that use, like I said, everything went out of control. So how long from that point, how long, you know, was it months? Was it weeks, months, years before you ended up in the? It was years. No. Getting it years. The whole process from start to finish of from, from that relapse to the point of me going to prison took place over several years. And so okay. much happened during that time that I don't think we have anywhere near enough time to discuss. But there are important right. things that I'll touch on. Yep. I kept, it's I, your show. It's your show today. <laughs> Thank you. I kept going to college while using heroin. I had a job at the University Mall in Orem, Provo, uh, as a general manager of the Arby's there that I kept. I I kept friends that were good friends while I used, and I kept it quiet. 
And I made new friends that weren't exactly bad friends, but that I would go out and drink with. And I kept them out of the heroin game. That entire first year after I started using heroin again, it was completely stealth mode. Just using by yourself or just using with by myself. Friends? Sometimes, sometimes Zach would show up, we'd use together. And it got to the point where I did, I got back to where I was using every day. I'd find excuses to leave my job saying, oh, I've got to cut out an hour early. Can you guys cover for me? I'm the general manager. And I'm asking teenage kids with their first job, hey, will you hold the store down? I've got to go take an hour and a half long lunch to drive up to Salt Lake and buy heroin and come back. Wow. That's dedication, yeah, well, man. The pursuit of happiness, I guess. I don't know. Or, or something. So yeah. it, started to, it started to show. It started to reveal itself. And that's the thing about heroin and meth and, and cocaine and crack. You can get away with it for a long period of time. But I promise it is... It is guaranteed to happen. It will show through the cracks. It will start to fragment your life and people will start to notice. There's no way you can avoid it. And it started to show up. It started to show up in the form of me starting to miss out on work. Like I said, it started to show up where I missed some classes at college that I had to actually bribe, cheat, and talk to professors to say, hey, let me take these tests outside of the normal testing format you know I've been a good student up until now. Don't let me fail now. I extorted them. I, I got a couple of those professors to give me exception exemptions to hard school rules. And I used every person that came into my life as long as it got me to the heroin. Every single thing was, was geared towards how am I going to get back to Salt Lake? How am I going to get some more money? But it just kept on going. Well, the funny thing is there was a small little bubble in there where I actually sobered myself up by no choice of my own. I just stopped one day. It wasn't a, I'm going to stop using. I just stopped using because I, I started to go back to Irish dancing. That's something that my family, my, my family has been doing since we were kids. My mom is Irish. She made us go to Irish dance lessons every week and we were good. Well, my sister, my oldest sister, Naomi, she decides that we, she wants to get back into it and we haven't been in it for years. And I don't know if it was because of the dancing and making good choices again, but it just stopped. It just disappeared, the heroin use. And I started dancing. You replaced it. Replaced it with something yeah, good. Yeah, I replaced it. And it was just so fascinating to me looking back on it because I made no decisions of, I'm going to stop. I'm going to cut back. I'm going to quit. It just happened. It's the only time that that's ever happened. And it was during that dance involvement when we got back into competing and when we started going around to the different competitions that I met the woman who would become my fiance and she was probably the single greatest woman I have ever I've ever dealt with in my life she was so funny she was smart she was competent she was college graduate and and completely independent and just completely strong. And I met her through the dancing and we started a relationship. And the relationship for that first six months went flawlessly. You couldn't put a movie on the TV screen that would depict a more successful courtship and relationship that developed. It was so powerful and the feelings were so deep 
and I knew beyond a reason of a doubt that this woman was going to be my wife, the heroin resurfaced. And she did not know. What was the, what, what was the trigger then? At that point in time, it was a car accident. I don't remember if it was immediately after the car accident. I'm pretty sure it was a few months after the car accident, to be honest with you. But That you were involved yes, in? Yes, I was involved in I ended up okay. on the freeway, and I rear-ended somebody at a construction. It went down to one lane, rear-ended them, going about 60 miles an hour. Yeah, it was it was okay. I, I wasn't really injured, but I did have some pain. And I I asked a friend for some just some pain pills one day because I was just hurting really bad. Pain pills went right back to heroin. The pain pills vanished like <laughs> they were gone. <laughs> the the really messed up part of that is that Kirami had no idea who she had gotten herself involved with. There was honesty and there was trust in our relationship, but that was the one thing that I did not discuss with her. And now I'm using well, which makes sense because you weren't you weren't using you weren't active in it, so I could see why you wouldn't share sure. that. I mean, it might be because you might be a mood killer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, I uh, yeah. Here's yeah. all this. So she didn't know, and I started using heavily. And when you relapse after you've used heavily, the slide back down. You don't become a weekend warrior again for a second time. You go right back to the bottom, and you go right back to your heavy usage. And I kept it concealed yet again for months. And everything came to a head when I got my first arrest. I was driving back home from a cabin trip with my singles ward there in Highland. And I had two kids that needed rides home with me. They were new kids to the ward. I barely knew them, but they knew who I was. I was the activities committee president. And I said, yeah, sure, you can hop in this car and I can drive you home. Well, the car wasn't insured. I had bought it for my brother. And I just hadn't had time to get it all set up and legal. But I needed to go to this cabin trip. And I needed to get home early because I had a dance competition the next day. So we're driving down uh, Parley's Canyon. And I get pulled over. And I have no idea what possessed me to do this. But I lied about my identity. And I said that I was my, my twin brother. Because... The car was still registered to him. The car was still under his name. And I thought if I could make it seem like it was his car, maybe I could just tell him it slipped my mind. I didn't get insured. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. I don't. But the cop knew. He saw the picture and he said, wow, you've you've really gotten taller since your driver's license picture. Yeah, yeah, you know, growth spurt and whatever. What's your social security number? And I had no clue. So he arrested me. And that was the first time that I went to jail. And everything that came out because of that, everything that came out as a result of that, turned around to, to educate Kirami that, hey, you're with a boyfriend who A, is a liar, and B, he's using heroin. That came about. And all of a sudden, she is now faced with the decision, do I stay with this man that I know that I love? Or do I cut him off? And she made the decision to stay. She made the decision to stay and to support me and to help me so long as I was willing. And I loved her too. And I made the decision to try. 
That decision was very naive, and I had no respect for the level of involvement that the heroin had in my life. Moving up a few years, or excuse me, a few months, that following January, we moved to Salt Lake. Moved in together, moved into an apartment in Salt Lake. I wanted to take some classes at the U, and she wanted to be closer to her work. But the sad thing here is that I secretly knew that by moving to Salt Lake, I'd be that much closer to the dealers. I would be so close, just a short little tracks ride right down to where it's at. And she had no clue. She'd never bought heroin. She had no idea that that was going to be a bad situation for me. And it turned out to be the worst possible situation because everything, once we moved to Salt Lake, became chaos. It became a furious hurricane. Used and I used and I used and I started running out of money and I lost my job as an extern for my college degree that I had just spent three years getting because I was high at work and the patients are sitting there. I was working as a medical assistant and the patients are sitting there trying to tell me why they're in the office today and I am falling asleep at the computer. The term in heroin speak is nodding off. And when you're using heroin, you don't know that you're doing this. You are falling asleep, standing up, sitting down. It does not matter where you are. You will fall asleep and then you'll jolt back awake. Huh? What happened? You don't know that it's happened. And I'm trying to ask these patients, what are you coming in today for? Wow. Sir? Huh? And I lied and it's finals week at college and I'm just really tired. (laughs) Well, that job didn't last very long. Lost my externship. Could have lost my degree because of it, but I had already graduated at that point. And I couldn't hold a job after that. And I started running out of money. And I started using my fiance's money. And I started using other people's money. And I started stealing from neighbors. And I started stealing from people on the streets. And I just started taking money from every single person that I met what are you going to do to give me money? What can I give you that'll get you to give me money? It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter how long I'd known you. I was going to get some money out of your pocket right now. So you became a salesman. (laughs) No idea that the amount of money that a heroin addict can get together in a day. They are the most industrious, fastidious, hardest working individuals on the face of the planet. And they will stop at nothing to get more. Yeah, that's just an amazing. That's, yeah. I mean, you can you can explain it six ways from Sunday, but if someone who's never experienced that, there's just no way. There's no way to understand. But I can tell the story, and hopefully, people can listen. <clears throat> yeah. All right. So you're. You're using every, you're sucking through everyone else around you. So, how how long did that last before your next in, encounter with the law? Well, my fiance in a position of trust at work has her boss ask if she can house sit for him for a weekend. This man is fairly wealthy, and of course, Kirimi said, "Do you want to come with? And we can stay the weekend there, and there's food there, and we can go to the park." And I said, "Yeah, of course." Immediately, my mind starts working. I'm going to scope this dude's stuff out. So we go and we stay there for the weekend. And oh, my heck, I was paying attention. 
And not only was I paying attention, but I ended up getting a copy of the key to his back door. Wow. You were industrious. Anything. Well, he comes back into town and I wait about a week and I finally go over there. I scope it out. He's not home. He's at work. His son's not there. He's at work. And I went into that house and I took TVs and I took laptops and I took money and I took their quarters collection of all the 50 United States quarters and I took the coin jar and I took anything that had worth anything that had value and it went on for a while like that and nothing became none of the attention was directed at me until I stole this man's tubas you stole tubas? tuba burglar over the top <laughs> I stole some tubas but it's funny now oh it's funny okay so tubas all right so tell me about the well the tubas. tubas ended up being the tell my fiance had talked to him over the phone and the only thing that he was really worried about while we were house sitting was his damn tubas I mean he is if you want to talk about an avid musician he is the tuba guy he is so serious about this tuba stuff he's in societies and he performs and he and, and, He's into these tubas, and they're worth quite a bit of money. I stole his tubas, and I sold them online using a fake account, but they were able to trace the account to me, and I picked up my first burglary charges. And I finally, I went on the run. I finally got caught about a week later, and I went to jail for my first actual stay in jail. Park City Jail, I was there for a night, bailed out. That was jail. This time, I went to Salt Lake City Jail, and I was going to be there for the stay. This is my first introduction. And how long, how long was, was that, the stay? The first one was, was six months. Okay. Well, I stayed in that jail, and it was probably the worst possible scenario you can imagine for jail. <laughs> you have nothing. The food is horrible. And they do not care about you whatsoever. There's no classes. There's no programming. There's no rehabilitation. It's just a place where they hold you till you're dried out or your court case closes. And I remember thinking, this is enough. This is going to keep me on the right path. I can't believe I did this. And now I'm in jail. And now I've seen it all. I have enough motivation to quit. It was days after I got out of jail that time that I was back using again. That is that that that's probably the only way to explain the, the addiction. Yeah. That you would do something so stupid, you know, days after being released after spending six months there. Yeah. Holy cow. Days. Because you just don't even care, right? You don't use that the you, the feeling you just don't care about the consequences. Well you get out and you have this freedom and you're like, Oh, I see life differently. Oh, I'm gonna change my ways and oh I could just go get some heroin right now. Like I, I just I just did six months without heroin and that was really tough. So I'm gonna reward myself. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Justify reward yourself. That's your brain is it. chemically altered. You are no longer a normally yeah. functioning human being. And all of the most irrational thoughts in the world that you could possibly imagine yourself having become absolutely rational to the mind of the heroin addict. Let's reward ourselves for burglarizing a friend 
screwing off my relationship, breaking the law, going to jail. Let's reward myself with some heroin. Yay. Yeah. Party, Party time. All right. So I'm assuming fiance is, is she still in the she picture? She stuck point? with me. She actually visited me in jail and she said, look, I know this was your addiction and not you. And I love you. We just need to get this addiction fixed. And she, she, we tried. We tried so hard. I kept telling her I'm sober. I kept using. I kept, she kept walking in on me, getting ready to use. And I was like, no, this isn't what it looks like. And yeah, it's exactly what it looks like. I mean, it got so bad. The manipulation of the scenarios got so bad that I wanted her to walk in on me one time. And she did that. I had filled up a syringe with dark black vinegar. And when she walked in, I looked at her and she almost, she was getting ready to freak out and looked at her. And I said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And I injected that syringe down the sink. Like I was being a really big guy and I was showing her that I was committed to quitting. But it was well, she left too. the bathroom and then I pulled out the real syringe and shot up. That is the level of manipulation. That is the level of, of depravity that it will cause you to do. I loved that woman to death. And, and I was doing that stuff to her daily. The psychological implications, I, I can't even imagine. Well, a couple months go by. Obviously, I'm not clean. Obviously, I'm not sober. And I start getting involved in some more shady lucrative opportunities and I get involved in the check forgery ring in Salt Lake and I just start going into banks don't give a crap using my own ID to cash forged checks for $800, $1,200 and I cashed a lot of those checks before I got caught and it was money like you wouldn't believe and I was using more heroin during that period of time than right before when I got these bank robberies it was overwhelming levels of heroin usage it was fast money and i was addicted to it and it was it was thrilling to 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 screw over these banks and and it was exciting and 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 it got me the heroin and at the end of the day it doesn't matter what the what we did i got the heroin and you sort of had you created a new addiction yes with the the thrill of the The money that's fascinating it's for for addicts the life is so fast and it's so thrilling and it's so exciting, but there's a term in the drug, the drug community, and it's, you will never, or excuse me, there is no retirement in crime. You can have so much money. You find these dealers that go to prison and they're like, oh, I've got pictures of me with $500,000 in cash in a briefcase. And they have nothing now. There is no future for it. Yeah. And so I started doing these check forgeries and I started running around like crazy, just doing bank after bank, sometimes three or four banks in a day. And they, they finally caught me. I finally got in a bank and they called the police immediately. And I, they made me wait there for my ID and the police come walking in boom, I'm back in jail. And this time I did eight months. And in, in Salt Lake County, Salt Lake County jail. Okay. And that turned into that turned into a, okay, this is not working. I do need to actually try to figure out my life and get this fixed. And they didn't, they didn't, they didn't give me a lot of opportunities that first time. But the second time the judge was like, okay, you've got a very serious addiction here and we don't want to see you go to prison right now. Let's get you involved in some programs. Let's get you involved in rehabilitation. 
And so they let me out of jail on a pretrial release and they got me in classes, which I did attend for a while. And I was, I was making it. I was actually starting to put my life back together and Kirami and I were still together, but we were not living together. I was homeless this, this time. She actually got evicted from her apartment for, for me having been living there with her. So that, so because you were, you were living with her, that caused her to be evicted? Well, one of the other tenants or one of the other uh, tenants there saw me always living there and or there was only one person on the lease and they kind of okay. kind of blew the whistle on us so i finally get get it in my mind that if i don't stop this i'm gonna go to prison and i really really did not want to go to prison jail was so bad but i guess it wasn't bad enough it was maybe i want to say three months out of jail that's that last time that I was downtown and I was at the library and I was homeless and I was tired and I was sick and it was cold outside and a guy rolls up to me and he recognizes me, but I do not recognize him. And he says, Oh, I was at this, this house this one time where you showed up and bought some heroin and you were using, do you need some heroin? Jeez. <laughs> uh, I'm, kind of homeless and broke right now and i'm trying to stay sober oh that's cool bro i've got a couple of beads you can just have on me he gave me he gave me about 60 dollars of heroin for free and when you've used heroin and somebody says they want to give you free heroin it's over <laughs> you ain't you yeah. ain't gonna you take the high road on that one you're like oh yeah give it to me right now so i got back into using yet again and this time, I lost all reservations. I did not care if I was rude to my fiance. I did not care that everybody in my life, my family, my friends, was cutting me out systemically. You can't come over and see your nephews. You can't even come to our house. If you are on the property, we will call the police. You are no longer my best friend. We've known each other since second grade. You're out of my life. Don't come back. It just happened. And you, one after another. And you just, and you just didn't care? I didn't care. I, I was beyond caring. I said to myself, I don't think that they can think any less of me. And now that they're out of my life, I'm a free man. I cut, so who I cut the ties. I'm an independent source. Nobody, nobody will sway me. Nobody will affect me. And I'm done. I'm done with them all. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for part two of my interview with Marshall Roberts. Thank you again for listening to the Parish the Thought Show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us.